0: Uh, take their seats uh, my name is Siddharth Chandra and I direct the Asian Studies Center at Michigan State University um, and we are honored and delighted to be a co-sponsor of um, of this series of lectures being delivered by uh, Professor Rajmohan Gandhi um, James Madison College of course as you know is the is the sponsor and uh, the Michigan State University India Council and Muslim Studies are other co-sponsors of, of this series. Um, it's my real honor and privilege uh, to briefly introduce to you uh, Professor Rajmohan Gandhi. Um, I've known Professor Gandhi now for a little bit over a year um, and was um, really honored and, and, and humbled to be uh, able to connect with him uh, starting last year when he delivered um, some very interesting and very thought-provoking lectures on a variety of issues related to India, Indian history, philosophy, and the Mahatma's uh, life. Um, uh, I hope everybody appreciates how unique this opportunity is uh, to be able to attend a series of of, uh, lectures uh, by one of the most thoughtful, I think, historians and philosophers of India I've had the privilege of encountering, and I think you will too. Professor Gandhi is author of many books. Um, He's written uh, 12 books. Uh, They, again, cover topics in Indian history, in philosophy, um, also biography, historical biography. Um, He has published uh, chapters, articles, in a number of other books as well, again on subjects, I think, of great historical but also contemporary uh, interest. Um, And uh, in addition to that, um, in his distinguished career, he has served as a uh, uh, member of the Rajya Sabha, which is one of the houses of parliament in India. Um, he has actively um, worked with uh, civil society organizations uh, to promote messages of nonviolence uh, and messages of social harmony. And I think you will pick some of that up during um, his uh, lecture tonight. I'd like to say one other thing because it's relevant to the topic of um, uh, uh, Professor Gandhi's uh, topic tonight, Ahimsa. Um, You'll actually find, I think, that it is a very relevant topic in the context of what is going on in the United States today, uh, but also worldwide. Um, It is about... So Ahimsa is is synonymous, is is thought to be synonymous with nonviolence, but the concept of nonviolence goes a lot beyond... Uh, what some of you might consider to be physical uh, non-violence and and I think you'll you’ll get some familiarity with the concept of ahimsa in all its depth uh, from Professor Gandhi’s talk today so so once again uh, please welcome uh, Professor Gandhi uh, and I, I hope you appreciate how unique this opportunity is
1: Uh, Thank you, Professor Siddharth Chandra, for those uh, generous words. And I thank everyone for his or her presence here. And I thank again the crew for the wonderful uh, work that they're doing. Just to give you an idea of the themes of the lecture so far, uh, lecture one was on what drove Gandhi, what his passion was. Lecture two was in two parts. One, how Gandhi found this idea of uh, nonviolent defiance, satyagraha. And the second part of lecture two was uh, on Gandhi's religious beliefs. Lectures three, four, and five covered, uh, you might say, large political questions. Uh, Lecture three was Gandhi and empire, relationship between Gandhi and Churchill. Lecture four was Gandhi and partition, relationship with Jinnah. Lecture five was Gandhi and social justice, relationship with Ambedkar. Uh, Today, uh, we are having uh, how Gandhi discovered and what he made of Ahimsa. Uh, And Lecture 7, again, is somewhat, you might say, personal about his life. It will be about the final and very unusual and rather extraordinary phase in Gandhi's life. That's Lecture 7. And that is uh, on the 22nd, Tuesday, here. And the final lecture is on the 29th, uh, just after the Thanksgiving break and that is on Gandhi's legacy, and where I will also, for the first time, also speak a little bit about myself. So you are warned. Uh, So an elderly Russian I met in Moscow in 1994 told me of the impact on Russians more than seven decades earlier, that is in 1922 of Gandhi's abrupt suspension of an India-wide non-cooperation campaign. Gandhi had called it off because an angry Indian crowd brutally killed 22 Indian policemen employed by the British Empire. This response by Gandhi, the Russian told me, was contrasted in the Moscow of 1922 with Lenin's defense of the murder of some of the class enemy who lay ill in a hospital. These things happened in a revolution, Lenin had evidently said. Louis Fisher, the American writer who met Gandhi several times in the 1940s, said that Gandhi wished to liberate India in order to liberate England from India. He had no animus, Fisher added. He was incapable of hatred. In this lecture, we will look at Gandhi's journey to nonviolence or ahimsa, to use the ancient word for it in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain texts, and also at what became Gandhi's ahimsa. From his autobiography, we know that in Rajkot, the adolescent Mohan was not against violence. Arguing that Indians strengthened with meat would physically drive away their British rulers, Mohan's brother, Karson and the brother's friend, Sheikh Mehtab, enlisted Mohan for secret meat-eating dates. As a young boy, Mohan heard of Ahimsa from his Mod Baniya relatives, and from Jain monks visiting his home. But this Ahimsa seemed to apply chiefly to diet at the time. However, Mohan also responded to a stanza in his school book that spelled out Ahimsa in a deeper sense. The Gujarati poet Shamal Bhatt had said, to give an English translation, For a bowl of water, give a goodly meal. For a kindly greeting, bow thou down with zeal. For a simple penny, pay thou back with gold. If thy life be rescued, life do not withhold and returned with gladness, good for evil done. From Rajkot, an 18-year-old Mohandas journeyed all the way to London in 1888. During three years in England as a student of law, he crossed, as he puts it, the Sahara of atheism. The call for forgiveness and non-retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount, which he read while in England, went in his words straight to his heart. But there was no rejection of militancy, In an article he wrote for a London magazine, The Vegetarian, Gandhi proudly wrote of an Indian shepherd as a finely built man of Herculean constitution who with his thick strong cudgel would be a match for any ordinary European with a sword. Returning to India in 1891, Mohandas began an immediate friendship with Raj Chandra, the Jain poet, thinker, and jeweler, three years older than Gandhi. A friendship which lasted until Rajchandra's early death in 1901. A scholar of Jainism, Hinduism, and religion in general, Rajchandra reminded Gandhi of the ancient Hindu maxim Ahimsa Paramo Dharma. Ahimsa is the highest duty, which was also a central Jain and Buddhist tenet. Long and deep conversations took place between Rajchandra and Gandhi. But these seemed confined to an individual's moral and spiritual goals and did not enter into the rightness or wrongness of violence on behalf of an ill-treated people. Soon after these conversations with Raj Chandra in Bombay, Gandhi experienced in Rajkot in late 1892 or early 1893 the first great shock of his life, as he calls it in the autobiography. He was forcibly ejected by the resident, the chief British officer in the Kathiawar Peninsula to which the Gandhis belonged, a man called Charles Ollivant. Some months earlier, young Gandhi had run into Ollivant in England and had found him friendly enough. But in Rajkot, when he called on Ollivant to intercede for his eldest brother, he was thrown out of the residence office. A proud barrister, who was also a proud descendant of ministers in Katiawar, Gandhi seethed with rage. Perhaps, as Ollivant had Ollivant had asserted, it was an impropriety to recall Champ's London meetings to help his brother, but being physically ejected felt intolerable. Gandhi informed Ollivant in writing that he would initiate legal action for assault. However, India's preeminent lawyer of the day, Feroz Shah Mehta, warned Gandhi not to invite Ruin by proceeding against a senior Raj official. Gandhi pocketed the humiliation. Though the anger against Ollivant cooled with time, Gandhi may have entertained violent thoughts for a while. This is suggested by a remark that Gandhi made much later in 1924. Gandhi said, wrote, As a coward which I was for years, I harbored violence. I began to prize nonviolence only when I began to shed cowardice. Persuaded by Meta, Gandhi had failed to implement his notice to Ollivant. To Gandhi, this was cowardice. Having swallowed the humiliation, he was assailed by violent thoughts. We do not know precisely what the thoughts were. What we do know is that Gandhi was capable of of imagining violent scenes. Thus, in 1925, he wrote, I've had in my life many an opportunity of shooting down my opponents and earning the crown of martyrdom, but I had not the heart to shoot them for I did not want them to shoot me. And in 1931, he said, having flung aside the sword, there is nothing except a cup of love which I can offer to those who oppose me. We know that he never acted upon his violent thoughts. We can imagine that he was repelled by their emergence, a natural reaction in one who had been receptive to the Shamal Bhat verse, to the Sermon on the Mount, to the ancient Hindu Maxim on Ahimsa, and the ideas of self-control he had discussed with Raj Chandra. Yet it appears that violent thoughts continued to prey on his mind. It was only after he developed a non-violent way of fighting, a process that evolved in South Africa during the 13 years between 1893 and 1906, that the temptation of violence left his system. The Olivant episode was a major reason, Gandhi tells us, why he seized the South African opening offered by the Porbandar-born merchant Abdullah Shet. Gandhi needed to get out of Ollivant's orbit as quickly as possible. From the moment of his arrival in South Africa, the 23-year-old Gandhi kept his eyes wide open against any mistreatment of Indians. This now is a vigilant Mohandas. In fact, one ready to fight, but also a wary one. Never forgetting that in that brief interview before the ejection, Ollivant had tried to claim the moral high ground, young Gandhi now wants to be sure that in any future encounter with the empire, he would occupy that superior space. Never again, he told himself, would he be caught in a false, that is, a morally weak position, he informs us in the autobiography. Within days of landing in Durban on South Africa's east coast, the 23-year-old Gandhi made that well-known journey to Pretoria that all, including Gandhi, agree altered his life. Though holding a first class ticket, he was tossed out of the train in Peter Maritzburg, his only offense being that he was not white. It was winter time in the southern hemisphere. Rejecting a temptation to return to India, he decided in the station's cold waiting room to stay in South Africa and fight. After a decent enough train ride the following morning to the town of Charleston, he was badly beaten up on the journey's next leg, which was by stagecoach, to Standerton, because he refused to sit on a piece of dirty sackcloth spread out on the footboard away from all the other passengers which the conductor had ordered him to occupy. Though pushed and thrashed, Gandhi hung on to the rails of the coach box. Eventually, the conductor ceased beating him. In Johannesburg, uh, where there was an overnight halt, hotels barred their doors to him, but an Indian merchant offered accommodation. The next morning, it was with difficulty that Gandhi managed to secure a first-class seat on the train from Johannesburg to Pretoria. We are talking about 1893, when the journey from Durban to Pretoria was a complicated affair. Resisting degrading treatment and standing his ground, Gandhi had regained the self-respect snatched from him by the Ollivant episode. Also, and this too was significant for Gandhi, he no longer had to choose between two life goals— one spiritual and the other political. A fight to uphold the equal worth of all human souls, whether the body around the soul had a white, brown, black, or yellow skin, would be a spiritual as well as a political exercise. During his months in Pretoria in 1893-94, Gandhi moved closer to Ahimsa, thanks largely to what he read. The Tolstoy book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, was the strongest influence. Gandhi found it more appealing than the mainline Christian tracts that friends in Pretoria were urging him to read. Pretoria's young Gandhi had plenty of time. The case for which he had been hired was yet to pick up steam. He walked, he read, he reflected, he went to churches, he joined numerous lunches where participants, including Gandhi, knelt down to pray for light. He was the only non-white among them. In October 1893, he journeyed a long distance from Pretoria to attend a large Christian convention in Wellington, 40 miles from Cape Town. Yet it was the Tolstoy book that uniquely gripped him, offering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, from which Tolstoy underlined five commandments, love your enemies, and do not hate, do not lust, do not hoard, do not kill. Gandhi felt overwhelmed, he would say, by the independent thinking, profound morality, and truthfulness in Tolstoy's presentation. Another significant influence on the young Gandhi was his reading of books on on India's 1857 revolt, which began with the mutiny of the sepoys. As a schoolboy in Rajkot, he had heard of the revolt, which ended only 10 years before Gandhi's birth. In old age, Gandhi would describe the climate prevailing in Rajkot and much of India during his boyhood. The Sepoy war, he recalled, was quelled by means of superior force. Outwardly, things quieted down, but the hatred against an imposed rule went deep underground. In the summer of 1891, when a 21-year-old Gandhi was leaving England to return to India, a friendly British jurist called Pincott had asked him to familiarize himself with recent history. In particular, said Pincott, Gandhi should read the volumes about the 1857 revolt, Two and a half years earlier in Pretoria, Gandhi acted on the advice. There is no record of his immediate reactions to the volumes, yet we have to be impressed by the number of times the later Gandhi referred to the revolt. In Hind Swaraj, written in 1909, he says more than once that a true satyagrahi should be ready to be blown from a cannon's mouth, which is how many rebels met their death in 1857. On 24 July 1947, three weeks before independence come partition, Gandhi expressed a fear, soon to be tragically realized, that India was moving towards a carnage similar to that of 1857. We are nurturing attitudes, said Gandhi, that will result in war, and if this drift is not stopped, we shall find ourselves in a conflict much more sanguinary than the mutiny of 1857. India then did not have enough awakening and the mutiny was confined only to the sepoys. All that we did was to cut down Englishmen. In the end, the British army overcame the mutineers, continues Gandhi. God forbid that the present strife between Hindus and Muslims should ever assume such dimensions. I shall appeal to you not to prepare for warfare. His study of 1857 had suggested to a 23 year old Gandhi that violence was folly. We may infer, too that the link that the future Gandhi always made between fear and violence bore a connection to his study of 1857, when people on both sides feared that they would be killed if they did not kill. Though Tolstoy and the study of 1857 did not produce a commitment right away to Ahimsa, Gandhi's commitment to South Africa's Indians grew. In In 1894, he organized the Indians of Natal, and helped start the Natal Indian Congress. In January 1897, when he brought his family to South Africa, a white mob assaulted him on the streets of Durban. Narrowly escaping death, Gandhi decided, in the interest of good relations between Indians and whites, not to proceed against the assaulters in a court of law. But he did not talk of ahimsa. Two years later, at the start of the so-called Boer War, a clash between South Africa's dominant white groups the British and the Afrikaners, Gandhi led hundreds of Indians to the battlefield as ambulance workers on the British side. Refusal to aid the British at that critical juncture would invite fresh hostility towards Indians and demands for expulsion, Gandhi thought. His life was changing. Simplicity became a goal and he returned gifts he and Kasturba had received for serving the community. Since South Africa's Indians included Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, and Parsis, Gandhi looked for opportunities to strengthen intercommunal links. Indignities that he and all Indians faced in South Africa made him think of the indignities that India's untouchables received from higher castes. He learned an important truth or two also from his wife, Kasturba. After she shamed him into seeing his domineering side when in that well-known story he tried to force her in Durban in the late 1890s to follow his rules for looking after an untouchable housemate. In three a 33-year-old Gandhi studied the Bhagavad Gita in depth. He dissolved himself in it, he memorized it. Two truths from the Gita he retained for life were, firstly, that his concern had to be about his actions about what he should do, not about the fruits of his actions. And secondly, that the world and everything in it belonged to God. Also reading John Ruskin's Unto This Last at this time, Gandhi embraced the goal of social equality and told himself that a barber's work had the same value as a lawyer's work. When poor Indians living in a Johannesburg ghetto called Brickfields faced a plague epidemic, Gandhi led a successful effort to save many lives. In 1903, he launched the journal Indian Opinion, and in 1904, the Phoenix Settlement near Durban, the first first of Gandhi's ashrams. In 1905, when Russia and Japan fought a war which the Asian power won, Gandhi commented several times on it in in Indian Opinion without mentioning violence or nonviolence. His joy in the triumph of the Asian country was unconcealed. So far and wide have the roots of Japanese victory spread, he wrote, that we cannot now visualize all the fruit it will put forth. The people of the East seem to be waking up from their lethargy, he wrote. Now, however, he was on the eve of perhaps his greatest transformative experience, his four weeks in June-July 1906 as a stretcher-bearer and paramedic for the British colony of Natal, which was trying to suppress a Zulu rebellion. We have already looked at that experience and at the birth in consequence of Satyagraha. I will not relate that story again. Instead, let me offer a few short observations about Gandhi's nonviolence. One, the personal resolutions he made in Zululand for poverty and chastity were related to his keenness to face the world from a moral high ground. Two, Gandhi's close reading of Henry David Thoreau's classic essay, as Gandhi called it, on civil disobedience, seems to have have occurred some months after the meeting of September 11, 1906, when the Indians in the Transvaal decided on their nonviolent disobedience. A year after that meeting, Gandhi extensively quoted Thoreau in Indian opinion. Calling Thoreau one of the greatest and most moral men America has produced and lauding his opposition to slavery, Gandhi also said, quote, both his example and writings are at present exactly applicable to the Indians in the Transvaal, unquote. Gandhi seemed to find validation in Thoreau for the response that the Zululand experience and Transvaal's new Asiatic law had evoked from him. Three. We should mark that all the episodes on Gandhi's journey to Ahimsa occurred in multi-racial, multi-cultural settings. This was true of the Ollivant incident, of Gandhi's readings of the Gita, the Bible, and Tolstoy, all taking place far from India, and of the 1906 Zululand experience. When in November 1907, Indian opinion invited essays on civil disobedience and announced prizes, it also asked essay writers to absorb the writings of Tolstoy and of Thoreau and the story of Socrates and to provide biblical and other religious authorities for their views. The 1857 revolt that also influenced him was again more than the story of one race. We know also that Gandhi's ahimsa was not confined to the India West encounter. Relations within the Indian world in South Africa, whether between Hindus and Muslims, caste Hindus and untouchables, males and females, rich and poor, were also involved in Gandhi's ahimsa. Four, in Hind Swaraj, written in November 1909, Gandhi theorized the satyagraha that he and his associates had practiced in the Transvaal, and he presented non-violent struggle involving peasants and elites as a strategy for India's freedom. Five, this manifesto was evoked by a fascination for violence that Gandhi had noticed in some Indians in South Africa and also among some in young Indians studying in England, whom he met on visits to England in 1906 and 1909. Hind Swaraj presented a strategic alternative to violence. Six, a key argument for nonviolence that Hind Swaraj spelt out rested on human fallibility. Since human beliefs were not error proof, killing for a belief could never be justified. No man can claim, Gandhi wrote, to be absolutely in the right, or that a particular thing is wrong because he thinks so. Seven, Gandhi was stirred by Satyagraha's ability to empower the weak and the crippled. As Hind Swaraj put it, Even a man weak in body is capable of offering this resistance. One man can offer it just as well as millions. Both men and women can indulge in it, he wrote. Violence, on the other hand, endangered the weak. In later years, after he returned to India, Gandhi would elaborate this point, declaring, We cannot win Swaraj for our famishing millions, for our deaf and dumb for our lame and crippled by the way of the sword. If the practice of seeking justice through murders is established amongst us, we shall start murdering one another for what, for what we believe to be justice. In a land of crores, tens of millions of destitutes and crippled persons, this will be a terrifying situation. Eight, in the biggest of South Africa's Gandhi-led struggles, the great march of 1913 in Natal, in which thousands of Indian workers protested against attacks on their stay in South Africa, a vital role was played by women. Finally, we may note that when Gandhi returned in 1915 to his motherland and started his first Indian ashram, which in his, in his case was a training center for moral, social, and political change, a pledge of ahimsa was the very first of 11 vows that those those joining had to take. Truth, rejection of untouchability, fearlessness, and equal respect for all religions were among the other vows. So was Gandhi's ahimsa a way of struggle or a way of life? What we have seen shows that for Gandhi, ahimsa came intertwined with struggle. The intertwining was so close and tight that ahimsa and struggle seemed to become one thing. Ahimsa and satyagraha became synonymous. Ahimsa after Gandhi is thus very different from the ahimsa of which he heard in boyhood. What Indian tradition had largely reduced to a rule of diet emerged from Gandhi's hands as a weapon, a universal weapon to fight oppression, not just alien rule, but also national evils like untouchability and Hindu-Muslim discord and indifference to suffering. It became a way of life as well. The weapon of ahimsa fused with the element in Gandhi that had leapt up when he was in his teens on encountering the Shamal Bhat verse, on encountering the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi insisted that there could be no ahimsa if compassion, forgiveness, and equality were absent. A lesson in compassion was part also of Gandhi's Zulu, Zulu land experience when he saw what bullets and lashes do to a human body. Three years after that experience, when Gandhi was in England to educate its leaders and public on what Indians in South Africa were facing, he was asked to speak at London's Emerson Club, saying that South Africa's grim prisons where he and the other Indians at satyagrahis had found themselves where the gateways to the garden of God, where the flowers of self-restraint and gentleness grew beneath the feet of those who accept but refuse to impose suffering, Gandhi added, war demoralizes those who are trained for it. It brutalizes men of naturally gentle character. It outrages every beautiful canon of morality. Its path of glory is foul with the passions of lust and red with the blood of murder. This is not the pathway to our goal. But if ahimsa meant compassion and putting aside angers and hates, and it meant identification with the poor, why didn't Gandhi use the old Christian word love? Wasn't that positive expression better than the negative phrase ahimsa? Gandhi liked the word love, to underline what love could do, God's love for humans, human love for one another, Gandhi often invoked Indian poets and saints, including Kabir, Nanak, Tulsidas, Tukaram, Mira, Darsimeta. On occasion, he also invoked Paul of Tarsus. In November 1917, after wondering what gift he should send to a favorite nephew, Maganlal, on what by the Hindu calendar was New Year Day, Gandhi decided to send the lines of lo- on love in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, closing with, and now abide faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Writing out the passage in Gujarati for his nephew, Gandhi added, read this, chew the end, digest it, read the original in English, translate it into Hindi, Do all you can, strain your neck and eyes, but get a glimpse of this love or charity. Meera, continued Gandhi, was stabbed with the dagger of love, and she really felt the wound. If we too can get at this dagger, we can shake the world to its foundations. Continued Gandhi, though I feel I have something of this love, I am painfully conscious every moment how very shallow it still is, I weigh and find myself very much wanting. Only yesterday I saw I had no room in my heart for those who would not let me have my way. Aware of Gandhi's response to love, several wanted to know why he preferred the expression nonviolence. In 1936, two African-American couples visiting him, Howard and Sue Bailey Thurman, and Edward and Finola Carroll, Asked why love, as described by Paul, was not good enough for him. Answered Gandhi In spite of the negative particle non, non nonviolence is no negative power. We are surrounded in life by strife and bloodshed, life living upon life. But it is not through strife and violence, but through nonviolence that man can fulfill his destiny. Ahimsa means love in the Pauline sense and yet something more, although I know Paul's beautiful definition is good enough for all practical purposes. We will return to this significant encounter in the final lecture, Gandhi with the theremons and the carols. Here, let us try to grasp what Gandhi was saying. Since the real world involves struggle, love and struggle had to go together. In other words, Ahimsa was love plus satyagraha, a way of life plus a method of struggle. As we have seen, it became a vow and demanded compassion and the spirit of forgiveness from the vow-taker. But Gandhi's ahimsa never abandoned the fight. We must ask, how active was ahimsa or love in Gandhi's relations with his wife, Kastur? In 1939, when Gandhi found himself in the Northwest Frontier province, he narrated his personal experiences with Kastur who was not present at what we must assume was a mostly male audience. Realizing that the gender question was relevant in that area today between Pakistan and Afghanistan, this is what Gandhi said on 23 October 1939 in a place called Hangu, 25 miles south of today's Pakistan-Afghanistan border. I used to be a tyrant at home. I used to let loose my anger at Kasturba but she bore it all meekly and uncomplainingly. I had a notion that it was her duty to obey me, her lord and master in everything. But her unresisting meekness opened my eyes and slowly it began to dawn upon me that I had no such prescriptive right over her. If I wanted her obedience, I'd first to persuade her by patient argument. She thus became my teacher in nonviolence. And I dare say, I have not had a more loyal and faithful comrade in life. I literally used to make life a hell for her, he continued. Every other day I would change my residence, prescribe what dress she was to wear. She had been brought up in an orthodox family where untouchability was observed. Muslims and untouchables used to frequent her house. I made her serve them all regardless of her innate reluctance. But she never said no She was not educated in the usual sense of the term and was simple and unsophisticated. Her guileless simplicity conquered me. You all have wives, mothers, and sisters at home. You can take the lesson of nonviolence from them. Now, in these sentences, which were clearly aimed at macho Pashtuns, I find an unspoken admission from Gandhi that Kastur became his teacher in nonviolence not because she was meek and obedient, although he refers to her meekness, but because she frankly questioned him, had arguments with him, and confronted him with his domineering side. Despite the orthodoxy instilled into her, Kastur accepted his radical steps, but she did so as a partner, not as a subordinate. In any case, Ahimsa after Gandhi has to include gender justice. We should mark that Gandhi did not lead or join a global anti-war or pacifist movement. After 1915, his field of action, his karma bhumi as he called it, was India. If his ahimsa succeeded in winning Indian independence, if ahimsa built a fair, just, and compassionate society in India, that would speak to the world. Not only did Gandhi not join a global pacifist movement, in 1918 in Gujarat, he tried to recruit soldiers to fight alongside the British in World War I. In 1942, he said that if freed, India would permit British and allied troops to remain on its soil to bring World War II to a successful end. And in October 1947, he supported the dispatch of Indian soldiers to Kashmir. Gandhi's nonviolence was complex. We see this in his reaction to a mutiny 18 months before independence in the Royal Indian Navy, as it was then called. This mutiny of February 1946 was initiated by young naval ratings, Hindu and Muslim, who had been thrilled by exploits of the Indian National Army led by Subhash Bose, and in particular, by the release prompted by the Empire's political calculations of three officers of the Indian National Army, a Hindu, a Muslim, and a Sikh, who had earlier been sentenced for life. The naval mutineers were provoked by discrimination from some white officers and by the food issued to them. None of the large number of the Navy's Indian officers joined their revolt, but many ratings did. For four days, there was violence, chiefly in Bombay, with incidents also in the ports of Karachi, Visag, and Chittagong. In Bombay, mill workers and many youth joined in rebellion But when leaders of the mutiny met Vallabhai Patel and Jinnah, both Bombay-based, they were advised to end their mutiny. On 23 February, fatigued organizers called off the mutiny, which, along with related disturbances, had resulted over a four-day period in 236 deaths and in injuries to over 1,000. Before learning that the mutiny had been called off, Gandhi commented, that to compel a single person to shout nationalist slogans was a a threat to the dumb millions of India. The violence in the streets, he said, was unbecoming and anti-poor, and the violence of the mutineers was thoughtless. For there is such a thing, Gandhi added, as thoughtful violent action. Disagreeing with those who would rather unite Hindus and Muslims at the barricade than on the constitutional front, Gandhi said, even in terms of violence, this is a misleading proposition. Fighters do not always live at the barricade. They are too wise to commit suicide. The barricade life has always to be followed by the constitutional. That front is not taboo forever, added Gandhi. It is a matter of great relief that the ratings have listened to Sardar Patel's advice to surrender. They have not surrendered their honor, If the mutiny was for grievance, real or fancied, they should have waited for the guidance and intervention of political leaders of their choice. If they mutinied for the freedom of India, they were doubly wrong. They could not have done so without a call from a prepared revolutionary party. Thus, a Gandhi disapproving of violence nonetheless examines violence from the standpoint of effectiveness. He distinguishes between thoughtless and thoughtful violence between foolhardiness and a mutiny that answered a call from a revolutionary party. When violence among Indians accompanied independence and partition, several of Gandhi's well-wishers, including Stuart Nelson of Howard University, Washington DC, who was visiting India at the time, and men like Swami Shivananda of Rishikesh, asked Gandhi why years of teaching nonviolence had not prevented killings. This is how Gandhi responded in July, 1947, before the great carnage of Punjab occurred during August, September, October of that year. Outwardly, said Gandhi, we followed truth and nonviolence. But inwardly, there was violence in us. We practiced hypocrisy, and as a result, we have to suffer the pain of mutual strife. Even today, we are nurturing attitudes that will result in war, and if this drift is not stopped, we shall find ourselves in a conflict much more sanguinary than the mutiny of 1857. The twin components of Gandhi's nonviolence, fear not and hate not, were both difficult to practice. But the first found wider acceptance than the second. Observing in his discovery of India that the dominant impulse in India under British rule was of pervasive, oppressing, strangling fear Jawaharlal Nehru added that thanks to Gandhi, that black pall of fear was lifted from the people's shoulders, not wholly of course, but to an amazing degree. It was a psychological change, almost as if some expert in psychoanalytical methods had probed deep into the patient's past, found out the origins of his complexes, exposed them to his view, and thus rid him of that burden. Hatred, however, proved far more resistant than fear. Gandhi had warned his compatriots that hate was a master, not a slave, that it could not be confined to one channel, saying, for instance, in 1926, we cannot love one another if we hate Englishmen. We cannot love the Japanese and hate Englishmen. We must either let the law of love rule us through and through, or not at all. Love among ourselves, based on hatred of others, breaks down under the slightest pressure on 16 June 1947, Gandhi pointed out that many in India had welcomed hate, saying, no one at the time during the battle for Swaraj showed us how to make an atom bomb. Had we known how to make it, we would have considered annihilating the English with it, said Gandhi. Because a violent alternative was not visible, Gandhi added, my advice was accepted. Now, Gandhi's analysis of the violence of 1947 went against the pleasing belief that Indians generally had assented to his tough prescription, which was that while British rule had to be opposed, the English, the Scots, the Irish, and the Welsh had to be accepted, even loved as individuals. A magnificent core of nonviolent satyagrahis indeed implemented that prescription. These included the carefully organized satyagrahis of Bardoli in Gujarat, who brought the land tax down in 1928. The meticulously chosen Salt Marchers of 1930, who triggered an extraordinary nationwide rebellion; the gallant Khudai Khidmatgars of 1930, led by Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who neither retreated nor hit back when confronted with brute force; and the more than 15,000 disciplined participants of the nationwide individual civil disobedience of 1940-41. But in its remarkable restraint, this core did not represent the mass attitude. Each time violence occurred during a Swaraj campaign, Gandhi would argue that unaddressed popular anger had abetted it. Although he frequently suspended a campaign because of violence, its resumption, or a new campaign, always followed at some point. For Gandhi could not indefinitely silence his or his people's urge for freedom. To be asked to love the British people was too much for the great bulk of those who cheered and supported Gandhi-inspired satyagrahas or took part in other revolts. Dislike for the British was common across India and also entirely natural. The events of 1946 and 47 showed, however, that it was, that it was only a short step from hating the British to hating Hindus or Muslims. Indians had failed a tough and almost unnatural test They had not expelled their hate of the enemy they wished to oust. And now, in 1947, hate was flowing between Indian and Indian. In the year 2016, we must acknowledge that hate continues to flow between Indian and Indian. It lies behind the blood that continues to flow in India and the subcontinent today. When Gandhi said, we cannot love the Japanese and hate the English, He was speaking, as I see it, not just to the people of India, he was speaking to himself too. Anger and hatred made many attempts to fill his heart, which allowed entry at times to anger, but never to hate. On 7 August 1942, on the eve of launching Quit India, Gandhi had asked for the removal of hatred against anyone, telling the large crowd gathered at Bombay's Gowalia tank, if there is the slightest communal taint in your minds. By communal taint, he means anti-Hindi or anti-Muslim or something like that. If there is the slightest communal taint in your minds, keep off the struggle. We must also remove any hatred for the British from our hearts. At least in my heart, there is no such hatred. At a time when I'm about to launch the biggest fight in my life, there can be no hatred for the British in my heart successfully schooling himself against hatred in his heart against the British, at times Gandhi retained feelings of anger. At these times, while liking and loving several British individuals, Gandhi did not see the British as his people. Several factors contributed to the 1947 carnage. Persistent Indian elements, Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh, joined imperial divide and rule in deliberately stoking ill will among Indians. Where, putting his life at risk, a Gandhi asked for calm and non-retaliation and fasted for peace, polarizers on both sides, exaggerated the wrongs of the other and glorified revenge. The message of friendship was passionately countered by a message of hostility. London's abrupt announcement on February 20, 1947, that the British would very soon leave all of India was not accompanied by any plan or who would replace them in Lahore, Calcutta, or Delhi. The result was an immediate and violent scramble for control, especially in Punjab, where local leaders were unable to compromise. The Janas Prime Minister idea that Gandhi came up with, which was aimed specifically at the deteriorating situation in Punjab, was foiled by the viceroy and the Congress leaders who joined hands for the purpose. As Punjabis were thrown into a collision course, the departing British more or less abdicated responsibility. Returning home at the earliest became the dominant desire of most British soldiers, policemen, and civilians. As for the Indian police of the Raj, crossing the border with their immediate families became the paramount desire of Muslim officers trapped in Hindu majority areas of Punjab and Bengal, and of Hindu and Sikh officers who found themselves in West Punjab or East Bengal. Saving the bulk of the population was thus a task abandoned to the people, who in fact performed heroically. Courageously and quietly, a great many Punjabis saved fellow Punjabis of the other religion, easily outnumbering those who killed fellow Punjabis no underreported story can be greater or nobler than this one. But in a climate that quickly became toxic, gangsters, criminals, drug and alcohol addicts became heroes. Greed for gold and houses played a part. On both sides of the new border, enraged refugees stoked passions. On both sides, former army men, including ex-Indian national army men, provided expertise leadership, and weapons to attackers. In that climate of killings and mutual blame, Gandhi prescribed tough medicine. In December 1947, when someone showed Gandhi a couplet in an Urdu magazine, asking for a new Ghaznavi to avenge the renovation of the Somnath Temple, Gandhi responded with these words. It is painful to read this but I cannot return evil for evil. Hindus must not remember the wrong that Ghaznavi did. Muslims must realize and admit the wrongs perpetrated under the Islamic rule. Which was harder, we can ask? Harder for Hindus to ignore an ancient wound, or harder for Muslims to admit it? But we should also ask whether without hard steps, Without an honest searching of hearts, the wounds of a divided nation can ever be healed. 11 years after Gandhi was killed, on 22 March 1959, a 30-year-old man who knew something about wounds and was interested in healing, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of Gandhi and also of Abraham Lincoln in a church in Montgomery, Alabama. They killed him, said King, This man who had galvanized 400 million Indians for independence, one of his own fellow Hindus felt that he was a little too favorable towards the Muslims. Here was a man of love, falling at the hands of a man with hate. But the man who shot Gandhi only shot him into the hearts of humanity. Just as when Abraham Lincoln was shot, mark you for the same reason that Mahatma Gandhi was shot, that is, the attempt to heal the wounds of a divided nation And Secretary Stanton said, now Lincoln belongs to the ages.